What kind of responsibilities do you carry? Sort of those big, um, almost identity-defining responsibilities, those roles that you have. So maybe you're the firstborn of a fairly good-sized family, and that means you're the assistant manager in the raising of all the other kids, right? That's your job. Maybe you're, uh, you're a, a new mom, and you were so excited to bring this little one into the world, and now you realize this little creature depends on me for everything. I can't ever get away. What have I done? I mean, this is great, but oh my goodness, right? Maybe you're a manager at your place of employment. You're the boss, and you can only imagine that others look to you and think, boy, that guy's lucky. He gets to call the shots around here. He gets to sign off on other people's vacation and take his when he wants to, and Oh, that must be great. But you know, being the boss, that's weighty. There's a lot of responsibility there. Or maybe uh, you're a college student, in which case you don't have any responsibilities at all. You just got to get to class. And the rest of us are envious of your carefree existence. And what I want to tell you is you're peaking right now. This is as good as it gets. It's all downhill and responsibility from there. I told that to my college son a couple years ago, and he still hasn't gotten over it. He was a little irritated, and I think partly because he realized he came into my life after college, so it said a little something to him about himself. Today we look at Paul's introductory remarks to his letter uh, to the Romans, and in it he introduces himself to the church um, in Italy and introduces his life's purpose. What God has called him to do and to be. He is, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, these Roman citizens fall under his jurisdiction. And so he has a responsibility to go and to declare to them the good news about Jesus and that through him righteousness can be ours as a matter of faith. And so that's really the main point of of the sermon this morning, right there at the top of your notes, if you're following along there. The good news of the gospel is that God's righteousness can be attained by faith. Um, Last week, I I said that this was the longest introduction of all of Paul's 13 letters. And the reason there, again, is because he doesn't have a lot of connection to this church. He didn't plant it, didn't start it, hasn't visited it before, So he has kind of a lot to introduce to them about himself and his ministry. So let's check it out. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one sort of quick confession before I I get into this. 
Paul is not my favorite of the New Testament authors. His sentence structure leaves me with a lot of questions as he constantly qualifies everything. And, you, and uh, he reminds me a little of C.S. Lewis, also not one of my favorite authors. I know I've just had like two major faux pas here. But, um, but I will say this, of all of his introductions in all of his 13 letters, I think this is probably my favorite. Because we see here just this incredibly crisp summary, really, of the eternal plan of God for mankind's salvation. And you look at all that he packs into his introduction. Think about this. His identity, his ministry, the nature of the gospel, the eternal plan of God, the lineage of Messiah, the incarnation, the resurrection, Trinitarian roles, and then just a kind greeting. And he gets all of that in just seven verses. And that is tough to do. And there's many points that we could draw out of uh, these first seven verses, and I'm going to choose to focus on one that might surprise you a little bit, but it's this. It's, it's Paul expressing his privilege to serve Christ in his gospel. What really impacted me this week as I studied the passage was Paul's enthusiasm, the joy that he has for what God has called him to do. Um, I, I truly love what I get to do. I love uh, being a pastor here at this church. I love, by God's grace, being a shepherd to you all. I was just talking uh, to a woman about this last week after the service. In fact, it is an incredible privilege for me that you would redeem my time, that you would set aside my time to study God's word, to pray for you, to pray over the text, to answer your questions, trying to anticipate them, and then proclaim to you what I've, what I've learned this week and how I feel God would speak to us today. Um, that is an incredible privilege. But there are weeks, there are days when the work is hard. There are days when the sermon is pushing back. There are times in my study and my preparation where I think, I need to stand up and proclaim something that's true, but I'm not sure that it's settled into my own life yet. My own obedience may be short of something that I see here. And I have to stand up on Sunday and preach this. There are times when I look around and I think, man, the fruit seems small in the work of ministry. There are times that pastor's just grouchy. There's times when the congregation is grouchy. There are seasons where the ministry is difficult. Some of you are thinking, yeah, we're going into September in the darker time of the year. This guy needs some medication. Um, it's not that. But I, if I'm honest with you, there are times where I know I lack enthusiasm for my calling. And I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect that many of you feel that as, as well. You can lack an enthusiasm for just being a Christian. Or you can lack some enthusiasm for being a gospel witness for Christ. And we can fall into these seasons or these patterns and so I really appreciated just in my study of all of the bits of theology in here, the thing that hit me in these first seven verses was Paul's joy and his enthusiasm to be able to do what God has called him to do. And that's something I want to grow in, is my joy and my gladness for what God has asked me to do. He, Paul calls himself here um, a servant. The Greek word behind that is doulos, and it means bond slave. 
uh, at this particular time, first century world, especially in Rome, uh, you could enter into service or basically you were a slave, but you could enter into service for a season, sometimes indefinitely, uh, and it was, inc- it was common practice. In fact, and this, this stunned me, there were more slaves in Rome than free people. It was such common practice. So it's kind of like employment, but not. Maybe closer to those of you who are enlisted in the military. Sometimes it was voluntary. Sometimes it was forced, especially if you were a prisoner of war or something like that. But all that to say is it was common language, common practice of the day. And so Paul humbly calls himself a doulos, a slave of Christ. In other words, he has signed himself up. He has volunteered his life to serve Jesus and to serve the gospel. And I think it's really incredible that he starts with this humility because the next thing he drops on us is that he is an apostle. Kind of big time, you know. But he starts by saying, no, I'm a servant, a slave of Christ to be an apostle. Um, Called to be an apostle. Let's talk about this uh, for a moment here. This is, I think, important at our particular season to understand. In, in the New Testament, we might say that there are almost two classes of apostles, okay? There are, first, apostle, apostolos means sent one, okay? Like an emissary or an ambassador, something like this. Um, there are apostles of Christ, and of those we find 12 and the apostle Paul, and that's all. And they are authoritative, They were to lay the foundation of the church. They were to proclaim the teachings of Christ and to pen scripture. Capital A, apostle, right? There's another kind of apostle that we see. Barnabas was one of these, still a sent one, but not an apostle of Christ. They would be an apostle of the church, or as we might call them today, missionaries. They don't have that same capital A authority. They don't pen scripture, but they are a sent one from the church. But Paul here is claiming capital A apostle. And the reason there are no more of these capital A apostles is because the criteria cannot be met today. In order to be one of these, you had to have witnessed the ministry of Christ, his resurrection, and been commissioned directly by him. And so only the 12 plus Paul meet that criteria. And from then on, leadership and authority in the church was Uh, the succession was handed down to elders, and that that was the leadership plan going forward. So all that to say, if you find yourself in a church, a Bible study, a movement, where one is claiming to be a capital A apostle, run away, because you're in a cult, at least a cult of personality. Get out of there. Um, Back to Paul's role here as an apostle to the Gentiles. Again, one commissioned by Christ himself, to take the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, we might ask ourselves this question. Why does Paul feel the need to take the gospel to a church? Why to a church? Imagine if I walked across my hallway uh, upstairs into Pastor Ethan's office and said, Ethan, good morning. Um, I'm here to proclaim the gospel to you. Probably Ethan's going to say something like, hey, I know I've got stuff to learn about pastoral ministry and whatnot, but um, I got the gospel, man. I got that. 
And so you can kind of see how silly that sounds. Why, why, does, why does Paul feel the need to take the gospel to the church in Rome? It's a church. They're already Christians. They've repented of sin. They've received Christ as their savior. They've received the Holy Spirit. They gather for worship. Their faith is genuine, even admirable. Paul goes on in the next verse to say that it's being spoken about the world over. So why does Paul need to preach the gospel to those who are already saved? And the answer to that question is because the gospel has implications for our ongoing life with him. And in many respects, our Italian Christians here are not living a life rooted in the gospel. They are doing well in most cases, but in a particular case, they are not. They were disparaging their Jewish brethren and maintaining a certain kind of arrogance and pride in their Gentile faith. In other words, their relationship with the Jewish brethren had not been properly informed by the gospel. So last week I I likened the gospel to the alphabet, right? The gospel is, is like the alphabet. The alphabet is the beginning of literacy, but we don't leave it behind as we move on to reading greater and greater books. We continue to need it and to depend upon it in our overall life of literacy. And in the same way, the gospel is elementary, but it continues to be necessary for our ongoing life and faith as it spells out our relationship with God and to our fellow man. So we continue in the gospel. We begin with it, but we continue with it. It continues to inform our faith. And in fact, you can in almost any case before a particular decision or a set of actions or whatever, you can ask yourself this question, how does the gospel inform this decision or this belief or this practice? And you'll be amazed as you kind of sit in that for a little bit and dwell on it, it will speak to you. The gospel is not just how we get into faith, it's about our ongoing life of faith. So the one thing I want to draw attention to here is Paul's tone. Uh, again, it's like they're not doing well in this respect, but notice he doesn't say, hey, you knuckleheads, I got to come all the way over to Italy to straighten you out? You guys can't get this right? I mean, I'm going to have to get on a ship, and I've been shipwrecked a lot. I don't need another one of these on my record. He doesn't have this, this ranting kind of tone. He's eager to go to them. And that comes through in the second point too. Paul is eager to impart a spiritual gift. Look at verse 8 with me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now... At last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you but have, not, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both wise and foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. 
So I love his eagerness and his excitement and to, to get to them and to preach the gospel to them and to correct some of their mistakes here. Um, there are some questions about this particular passage, particularly, what is this gift? What is this gift that he is bringing that he wants to impart to them? And there are some who suspect this uh, of being a financial gift because if you remember, Paul has just uh, finished taking up the collection for the poor in Jerusalem and so maybe they think they're going to get some of that here. Uh, but in fact, the, the, the thing that he's, the gift that he's really bringing is a proper understanding, again, of the gospel such that it unifies both Jews and Greeks in one faith. That is the gift that he wants to impart to them and to strengthen them, them with. And that becomes increasingly clear as we push into the final, final verses here. And I'll say this, these next two verses that we're going to look at, almost impossible to overstate their importance. The next 16 chapters of the book are basically explaining these two verses. So when you look at a key to the book, this is it right here. So this is our, our third point. Paul reminds them of the nature of the gospel. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I will just tell you that if there's, if there's any passage to read over and over again, to memorize, to meditate upon, to discuss with your Christian friends, these are the two verses that we should be chewing on regularly. And what they tell us about the gospel is critical. We're going to look at four things. The first is this. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is powerful. We need to be a little careful here. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that somehow the gospel is magical. I find some Christians almost talk about it that way. It's like it's this magical thing. And it starts to sound a little bit like Harry Potter and the magical spell, the gospel, you know. It's not that. Um, the gospel is powerful in what it achieves and what it performs and what it does. We're not celebrating it as this magical spell. We're celebrating what God does with the gospel. Believing the gospel has the power to completely change and transform a person's life and their eternity. When we accept the gospel by faith, we move from sinners to saints. We have a profound transformation. Um, I was thinking over my life, there have been three major transformations that I've experienced in my own life. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is, was my wedding. It was my wedding day when Amy and I got married back in Yakima, Washington. And I remember walking up to the altar, single guy, big church filled with people, and here comes my bride to be down the aisle and go through the wedding. I showed up a single man and I left as a husband. I have a wife. And it was just this, this amazing feeling. I can't believe that just happened. What did I do? No, I didn't think that. But you know, it's just one of those transformations. My core identity is different now. I'm not a single guy. I'm a married man. I have a wife. I'm a husband. The second time I experienced that same kind of 
feeling of transformation uh, was when Aiden was born. And same kind of thing. In fact, I don't know if you knew, knew this or not, but Amy and I, were, were, we debate pretty fiercely on things and have fun doing it. We could not decide on what to name our firstborn. We each had a name that we wanted. And um, so we, we decided to go odds and evens. If baby was born on an odd day, she would win. An even day, I would win. It's like casting lots for babies' names or something. <laughs> That's what we did. And so... Um, Amy's 10 days past uh, delivery, 10, in Yakima, Washington, and uh, she was uncomfortable. And so we go in for a doctor's appointment, and the, uh, the doctor says, uh, hey, we're going to induce on Monday. And we both were like, what day is that, you know? <laughs> and it turns out it was an odd day, which means she won. And, um, and, it, and then as I couldn't argue with it too much because she went into natural labor that morning anyway, so I guess that's the way it was supposed to be. Um, I don't know why I told you all that. I just got on our own. Just telling stories. But when Aiden was born, I just remember thinking, once again, this total transformation. I'm a dad. I have a son. We, we came in here as a couple, and we left as a family. This little one's dependent upon me. And I remember taking the left-hand turn coming out of the hospital. I mean, I waited forever till it was totally clear. First time with baby in the back seat, you know. We got home and I changed the first diaper at home. Amy would probably say, that's the last one he ever changed. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. But I remember, you know, after finishing changing his diaper, he still had that little, that little vinyl tag around his ankle from the hospital. And I had my, my keys in my pocket with a little Leatherman keychain on it, the little scissors, you know, and I remember, cut, I can still remember the feeling of just cutting that off. And I felt, it's like cutting the tags off a new coat or something, you know. <laughs> I, I can't take it back. I cut the tags off. We're stuck. The third time, the third time I, I experienced that same kind of transformation um, was back in 2009. Uh, when the membership of this church called me to be the senior pastor here. And um, it was very humbling. I had served as an associate here before uh, for many years, or five or six years, and we came to a meeting and you all said we would like you to stay and be our, our lead pastor. And I felt this total sense of transformation again. This, I am responsible to God for the spiritual care of this church, with me and the other elders. And that was a profound um, phenomenon of transformation. These are the three big ones that I can I think of in my own, my own life. But the gospel has the same kind of transforming work in our life. When we receive by faith the truth of the gospel and we receive Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we cross the line from sinner to saint. We go from one who was once under God's wrath to now being shielded from his coming judgment. We go from being an enemy against God to being his friend, his child, his bride. It is a total transformation of our nature, our identity, and our eternity. The gospel is powerful. Not in and of itself, but in what it does and achieves for us. The second aspect of the gospel that Paul highlights here is that the gospel is inclusive. 
you notice there's this little phrase here. It says, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And it's, if you listen to people as they read this familiar passage, it's funny. They'll get to this little phrase and they'll kind of read it quickly, almost like it's an inconvenience, a little in-the-way detail of what they're trying to say, right? Because we typically turn to this passage to speak of our confidence in the gospel, to speak of its power that, that it has to change a person's life. And, and so we just get to this bit of Jew and Gentile. Eh, it's, just, it's just kind of in the way, a little inconvenient thing. But it's not inconvenient at all for the Roman church and for what Paul is trying to impress upon them. This is their specific issue in the church of Rome. This tension between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were unfortunately being viewed and treated as second-class citizens not only within the community in Rome, but even within the church. There is sort of this two-tiered um, system of, of acceptance here. And what was basically going on is the Gentiles took pride in their salvation by faith. And they looked down upon their Jewish brethren who were still uh, conscience-driven to keep aspects of the Mosaic law. So they looked down on them as lesser than. Now, to just talk briefly about the Old Testament law, I need to say a couple things. First of all, the Old Testament law was never meant for our salvation. It does not have the power to save. It only has the power to convict. So as we've, as we've talked about before, the law was never meant to save. It was meant to show, to show us a need for a Savior, to show us what the righteous standard of God is that we cannot meet. We need help. That's what the law was intended to do. Um, the law, Paul calls it elsewhere, a tutor or a nanny. Or as I've explained before, like training wheels for the bike. You put them on to learn to ride, but you're meant to ride free of those. Well, the Jewish community, again, was sort of conscience-driven to maintain some of those laws, not as, a, not as a matter of salvation, but just as a matter of conscience. And so the Gentiles looked down upon them for that. Add to that the fact that the population in Rome was predominantly Gentile and, and the Jewish population was much smaller. Add to that the fact that the emperor Claudius issued an edict to, to, uh, to take all of them out, to take the, the uh, Jews out of the community, to expel them. And so this Gentile pride and superiority just kind of grew. And so Paul needs to correct that and he's going to correct it with the gospel message itself. First, he wants to remind them, hey, the Jews are God's chosen people. In fact, it was through Abraham that God made his covenant to bless all peoples on earth through Abraham and through his seed and through his line. The Messiah is the way he did that, coming from the Jewish lineage. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus himself says in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews, that is, it comes from, it comes, emanates from them. And finally, Paul, you'll notice this, even as we looked at his ministry in the book of Acts, Paul prioritized and privileged whom? Whom did he go first to? The Jews, the Jewish synagogues. That's where he started all of his ministry as he traveled. And if there was a rejection, then he would go out and go to the Gentiles secondarily. So the bottom line is this, if you really look at it, Israel is the main stock of the plant the Gentiles have, in a sense, been grafted in. And that's an illustration Paul uses 
later on. So that's why he makes this statement here, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, because they've got on the, the wrong foot here in Rome. Finally, the gospel reveals a given righteousness. A given righteousness. Verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Righteousness means right standing with God. And in this instance, this is not a reference to an attribute of God. Like, you know, he is his righteousness. It's a reference to something that he gives. A thing that God dispenses to those who need it. That's us. And so this is, of course, incredible news for Jews and Gentiles alike. If you think especially about the Jewish community, they have labored hard to try to keep the laws of God and just like you and me, failed again and again and again. I've often thought about um, the Day of Atonement. So imagine you're, you're, a, you're a Jewish family. You live in the countryside outside of Jerusalem. Once a year, you come to Jerusalem and you uh, give your sacrifices before the Lord and receive uh, forgiveness. And you look forward to this day all year because you've got a guilty conscience. You know you've sinned. You know what you did. You know what you said. You know what you thought. You get to Jerusalem you make your sacrifice and you feel that wonderful feeling of forgiveness, that weight lifted, peace with God, clear conscience, except now it's time to go home. Where are the kids? Where's my bride? How come we can't get anywhere on time? And you start having to fight and you think, I haven't even made it an hour. I've already sinned three times. My conscience is guilty again. I got to wait till next year to get this off my back, right? Imagine just doing this every year and just this sense of not getting anywhere. And finally, this beautiful news that Paul is laying out here, there is a righteousness that we don't attain, but is in fact given. A given righteousness. It would be an incredibly joyful uh, message to hear. It is what impacted Martin Luther. This was the verse that lit him up, so to speak. And he realized there is a righteousness that can be had by faith. Because even as a monk and a devout guy, he couldn't meet the standard. He needed this given righteousness. And let me just put a little, a finer point on it too here. We are not merely forgiven. We are not just declared not guilty. We are given righteousness. Let me explain this a little differently. Let's say... Somebody presented you with a piece of paper right now. And on that piece of paper was your debt load. College students, here's your, here's your student loans. Maybe your credit card bills. Your mortgage. Uh, car payments. Gambling debts. I don't know, whatever you got, okay? Here's all your debts. This is your debt record. And then all of your creditors called in and said, your debts are canceled. You'd feel pretty good, wouldn't you? You'd be like, wow, I don't owe a dime. Free and clear. That's amazing. Zero debt. That's just forgiveness. That's just justification. But what Paul is saying here 
is that the righteousness of Jesus is transferred into our account. So imagine if you looked at your account and you saw not just that you were at zero, but that you had wealth beyond measure. Your account with God has been populated by the righteousness of Christ. It has been transferred to you. You're not just at zero. You're rich beyond measure if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior. His righteousness is yours. A given righteousness. A righteousness that is received by faith. And so I want to close right now. Um, If you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I've never crossed that line of faith. There's the last point. That's where we are. I've never crossed that line of faith. Um, I, I've heard the gospel, but I'm not yet a Christian. But I'm convinced that I need to be. I need to make a decision for Jesus now. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. That you would be not only forgiven, but that the righteousness that you need would be transferred from Christ to you. That you would have right standing with God. So let me pray. And if that's the desire of your heart to become a Christian today, I want then just quietly where you are, pray this back to the Lord. Father, I agree that I am a sinner from birth and throughout my life. I see the righteous standard that you have laid out for us, and I know I can never meet it in and of myself. And so, Father, I repent of my sin, and I receive Christ's death on my behalf. I receive forgiveness, but I also rejoice to receive his righteousness transferred to me. So that, Father, you look upon me and you don't see a sinner. You see a saint, one who possesses the righteousness of Christ. Lord, thank you for that reality. I pray that we might walk in the light of the gospel of Jesus every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.